This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 75. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. The first step in having any type of success in life requires each of us to be an active participant. And our guest this episode, David Adam Cohn, has never been a guy to shy away from getting in that arena, regardless of what that is. Football was an early love for David as he would help Statesboro High School win the Georgia State Football Championship in 2005 as the starting quarterback before signing with the University of Michigan where he would play for the Wolverines from 2006 to 2009. After graduating from Michigan, David would feed his other passion of filmmaking and music as he is now a nationally recognized film director, creating commercials for the PGA Tour, Coca-Cola, Nabisco. He's worked with ESPN's College Game Day, and he's also created the Atlanta Falcons hype video. His creativity isn't just limited to filmmaking and directing as he released his first music single, So Close, in December of 2017, and that playlist would make the the iTunes Top 100 chart, while his debut album was released this past February in 2018 called Welcome Home. Here's episode 75 with David Cohn. David, thank you, sir. It's thank been you, an honor man. being able to get connected with you and now just being able to sit down and talk about your journey and some stories. And one of the reasons why I started the podcast mm-hmm. was all about stories and sharing those stories. And you're doing some of the thing, same things, but mm-hmm. it's creating stories with filmmaking mm-hmm. and music. So how did that become a passion of yours? Well, first off, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate this. This is a great honor. And, um, you know, as far as, as, as telling stories, I've, I've always been someone who um, wants to participate. You know, it's hard for me to just sit back and watch. So when it came to, to playing football and at an early stage, I realized I had a, you know, a proclivity for the sport. I wanted to play. I wanted to participate. You know, I love movies, so I enjoy making them. I like songs, so I want to write them. And um, it just kind of, you know, one step after another at, um, in my journey, I just, I just enjoy telling stories, you know, and I think that, um, anyone who truly opens their eyes up to the world, um, there's no shortage of, of topics to communicate about. And I enjoy, you know, communicating my ideas through, uh, through stories and through, um, passing that down and kind of, it's almost, um, like a documentation of life. I think that's right. it is, you know, and that's, that's what you're doing with, um, with your journey. And that's what we're doing here today, sort of a documentation and, um, I just, I really enjoy it. And so what do you love most about creating these stories? Creating these stories, what I, what I really um, am passionate about is sort of um, cementing in time, you know, what, what, what the topics of the day are. And um, the, when I realized, when I first realized the versatility of the medium of film specifically, um, I, was, I was very excited because um, you can tell narrative fiction with it, which, you know, you can tell these archetypal stories of the hero and that, that's important for us to, to relive. And that's why those stories have been passed down through generations to us. But you can tell um, nonfiction documentaries about um, any topic that's going on in the world or in your life. You can make advertisements, you can make, um, you know, commercials and corporate videos, or we can record us having a conversation here today and talking about sports. So that's what I love most about that medium in terms of music specifically. Why I like music so much is um, it's almost a, uh, you know, it's almost, um, you know, bringing order to the world for me in terms of the melodies and the harmonies and the rhythm and um, sort of abandoning chaos, I would say, in a sense. <laughs> um, but I've just, I don't know, it's just always been kind of 
um, since the moment that it hit my ear, it's kind of been in my heart. And I remember the first song that I truly loved was was Johnny Be Good when I heard it. You know, my parents were playing Chuck Berry around the house. And, and so how old were you at that time? I don't know. I was probably five or six, you know, or maybe even younger. I remember it around that time at least. And um, I just, you know, the, the, the sounds and the melodies, I mean, I think that's why we're all taken aback by music and we listen is because it's this structure. It brings some sort of order and we love the rhythm and we can tap our foot. Even if, you know, we can recall a melody to a song that we don't know the name of and maybe we've only heard once. And so I just, you know, I, I kind of took that and ran with it. And um, I, I, I love writing songs. It brings me a lot of joy. And I hope that music is a part of my life for a long time to come. I'd love nothing more than to write songs and to record them for the rest of my life, even if I, you know, don't make another dollar off of it or if it's never, you know, if I never um, sell out another packed house or anything like that. I'd love to um, sort of take a moment and, um, and let the world sort of um, channel its way through me. And that's how I think of some of the songs that I've written. You know, when I've had to sit down and I'm like, you know, I really want to, uh, I really want to write a song tonight. I think that, that that's how I want to spend my night. A lot of times it doesn't happen like that. But when I'm in a hurry and it's, or it's 2 a.m. and I'm, you know, I'm falling asleep and a melody hits you, I realized early on that if you don't record it right then, that it'll be lost forever, you know, and that's where some of the best material comes from. It almost channels its way through me. And um, I just hope that other people enjoy it. How well. old were you when you wrote your first song? Um, so I, if you ask my dad this question, he would say that I recorded, or I wrote my first song when I was three years old. And it was called, uh, <laughs> that was it early. was called, Einstein, um, baby. <laughs> it was called um, "Don't Be Afraid to Me." You know, a very, a very um, deep and philosophical title there. But uh, so then, I guess that song was so great that I took a, you know, a twenty-year break, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, music really um, became a bigger part of my life when I was ending my football career. So that was. Um, that was around the time that I was 20 years old. And I had recorded some music throughout high school and throughout college, too, especially like some more um, hip hop based stuff where the beats and the, the instrumentals were already generated for you. But in terms of like picking up an instrument, I picked up a guitar and said, I'm going to learn this instrument. It's a versatile mobile instrument that I can carry anywhere, unlike, you know, a piano or some other great instruments. Um, I said, I, I think I want to try the guitar. And I learned when I was 20 years old, I was a junior at Michigan and I didn't have a whole lot of extra time, you know, but I, I just, I plucked away on it for maybe 10 minutes a day, you know, learned off YouTube, taught myself, listened to some of the self-taught, listened to some of my favorite guitar players like John Frusciante and John Mayer and Citizen Cope and I was you know they pretty much taught me how to play guitar because I was trying to copy everything they did and then the melodies just sort of followed after that and uh, I think I wrote my first song my first song on guitar when I was when I was 21 and uh, when I was leaving college and um I wouldn't play it for you today. I don't, I don't know what it was, but uh, you know, I had to write a few bad ones first. But then um, one thing led to another, and I was getting into film school, and I just kept writing songs. And eventually I wrote a few that I thought were pretty good, and, and, and um, I had never... I had not um, sung a day in my life ever before that, um, you know, and um, nothing in front of people, nothing, 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 never, never learned. I mean, my dad tried to teach me about melodies and harmonies growing up, listening to the Everly Brothers and listening to like Peter, Paul and Mary and, you know, Buddy Holly and all those guys. But I had never done anything myself, but I just, I, you know, I, I love music and it was, you know, the first few songs that I tried to write turned out decent enough to write the next ones and then those were decent enough so that I would you know write the next ones and then eventually people were kind of excited about it and um, so I played a show down at Smithsville Bar in uh, 2012 and that was my first show where people came and, and heard me and I was I was pretty nervous I was I was more nervous than being in Michigan Stadium that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's a lot of spotlight right directly on you and only you yeah and not only that not only the um, the um, individual nature of being on the stage but you're not performing a sport. You're sharing something that you created, which is there's more of a vulnerability to that, you know, and that that can really get get to you. You know, if you're not if you're not mentally focused and if you're not if you don't believe truly in what you're presenting to the world, you know, as long as you're 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 presenting something truthful to the world, I think that they'll accept it and everyone can can get on board, you know, but um, I think people 
certainly can understand a fraud when they see one and can understand someone who's just going through the motions. And I don't know, I believed in the material that I was coming up with then. I still do now. And, um, you know, I don't know. I've, I've never promised that next idea. But as long as they keep coming, I'll keep, you know, trying to share them with the world. Yes. And so your journey obviously has sports. As you had mentioned, you played quarterback at University of Michigan. How has sports been able to help you be up on stage in that situation where you have been vulnerable, where the spotlight is directly on you and you're sharing something that you created? How has sports affected that and helped you? You know, sports has been such a vital part of my life. And I think for a lot of um for a lot of people's lives in this world and just in terms of um, establishing discipline and delayed gratification, I would say as well. You know, those two things, um, because when you when you first set off for a goal um, in sports and you're in the weight room every day, that reward that you're seeking may not come at all which would be a championship or to make it to the highest level. But even if it does, it's a year away or two years away or 10 years away. And, you know, that is the type of discipline that it took to first not only sit down with a guitar that hurt my fingers and I didn't know what I was doing and understanding that by tomorrow or this afternoon or next week, I'm not going to be any good at all. (laughs) I'm going to be in the same spot that I am now. But maybe at some point in the future... Um, it'll be uh, a rewarding endeavor, and it certainly has been one of the greatest decisions I ever made, but even more general than that, to sit down continuously at a blank sheet of paper, you know, at a blank sheet of paper, and you realize that it has to be full. You have to fill it up at some point, and it won't be filled up by tomorrow, and it won't be filled up by next week, and to, you know, to just take to to have the um, the knowledge that if you take that blank sheet of paper that it'll be rewarding at some point, and the more work you put into it, the more rewarding it can be. Not that it's necessarily going to be. And you know, if you have a few, you know, if you have a series of projects in a row that don't pan out, that can start getting to you psychologically. But every once in a while, it's kind of like a golf shot, you know, or, or, or throwing a touchdown. You know, you, you have that one, or even writing a song, you know, you have that one that makes you say, man, that was pretty good. I think I'll keep it up. But that's that's kind of um, how specifically sports, sports has affected me and um, just establishing that discipline in my life. So talking about throwing a touchdown pass, let's go back now to your earliest memories of getting involved with sports and why you gravitated towards sports in the first place. Sure. Well, a little bit about me. I I was born in Greenville, North Carolina, to two college professors, Carl and Diana Cohn, and I had two younger brothers. And um, we left when I was two years old because my mother had gotten a job at Georgia Southern University in South Georgia near Savannah. So she got a job there and my dad was um, going to be a professor at South University in Savannah. And they've had those respective jobs for 28 years now, each of them. And my mom's in the administration now and she's the vice president at Georgia Southern, which itself had a great football program. And the high school had a great football program. So, I mean, from an early age right there, that's where I really started to fall in love with the game. And that's where I started to fall in love with sports, specifically the game of football and specifically the quarterback position. And um, it sort of consumed me. You know, my my father had been from um, Belle Glade, Florida down near Miami. So I grew up a Dolphins fan and I watched everything Dan Marino did. And once we realized that I was going to be on the taller side and kind yeah, of how early it, was that? That was six, early. Six. Um, yeah, that was early on. Um, it was early on. My, and my mom's five, seven and my dad's five ten, <laughs> but her dad is like six foot two. So, and I was, I was very skinny, which wasn't good for the sport, but I was tall. And, you know, my dad at least knew enough to understand that all the quarterbacks in the NFL are 6'4 and 6'5. And I was watching Dan Marino play. And so when we realized I was going to be on the taller side and that I loved the game and I was throwing some passes even at five or six years old that, you know, kind of had a strong arm, um, he sort of pushed me in that direction and, and, and supported me. So we got a tire swing and I threw, you know, 200 balls through that a day and even in the rain. And it was not, you know, it was not like we talked about before. It was not an easy process and nothing ever is if you want to be very great at it, you know. And, um, all I wanted to do was, um, 
play tackle football. You know, I wanted to go out for tackle football. And um, my mom said, no, you can't play tackle football until you're of age, which at that time was 11, I think. And um, so I played flag football. And I remember the first, um, the first flag football team I was on, the first team I was on to play football, um, the guy, he wouldn't let me play quarterback. He, uh, he already had a quarterback that he liked or something like that. And, uh, but he put me at center because I was the only one that could throw a spiral, you know, through, through my, I guess I could throw a spiral through my legs or there, however you wanted it, you know? So I played center and I think that was the, the last time and the only time I never played the quarterback position, uh, in the game. Cause the next year there was a, a local coach down there on the flag team named Carl Anderson. And he picked me up and we, um, we started a run and gun show in the, in the flag league. And that was a lot of fun. And, um, but then after that, when I turned 11, I got to, uh, I got to play tackle football for the first time. And I think that, um, that is when you, uh, that's when football really started for me. And you find out a lot about yourself when you're lining up opposite, individuals who are bigger, stronger, faster, and most importantly, have a deep desire to inflict pain, you know? And, um, I think that, uh, for me, at least I realized that my mistakes possess consequences <laughs> that would affect me, you know, and my physical well-being in a negative manner. And I think that, I think that that's why, you know, we're so attracted to the game of football, you know, modern day gladiators. And, um, and it's, um, I think that that's kind of the root of our obsession. It's almost like a simulacrum for, for battle, um, in a, you know, a controlled and rule-based environment. And I think that that can be a great outlet for, especially for young kids, especially for young males, um, to have that and to sort of um, expunge their aggression in a way. And, and, and it teaches us that even, you know, it, it mirrors society in a way that, hey, we'll allow you to do this, but there are still rules and you can't do um, you can't just do anything you want. And it represents the game of life and that, um, uh, you have to play fair. You know, you have to play by the, um, the, the guidelines that are given. And within that you can let out your aggression and you can, um, have fun. So uh, how did a boy growing up in Statesboro, Georgia, mm -hmm. get to the University of Michigan? Now? Yeah. So the next step after that was I played for my middle school team, you know, went on and in Statesboro, there are two middle schools and there's only one high school, but there are two middle schools. And, um, so that, that introduced me to rivalry, the concept of rivalry and playing the local communities as well. And, um, that was my first time playing for a, a school. You know, that was my first time playing for a school and there's teachers, classmates, cheerleaders, getting your name kind of called over the, the loudspeaker. And that was, that was very interesting. And during that time, a few different things were happening. Like I said, Georgia Southern University was winning a lot of championships. So I saw what major college football, and they weren't division one, they were division two, but it was major college football, you know, what could be accomplished on that stage. And that was right next, that was right downtown you know, a couple miles from my home. And then as a seventh grader, I went to my first Statesboro High football game. And that was an atmosphere unlike I'd ever seen because they were playing at night. They were playing at night and I was a water boy on the sidelines for one of the games. And I think Statesboro won by over 40 points. And they had a, they had a head coach down there by the name of Buzz Busby. And, um, the greatest mastermind of football that I, that I know to this day. And they won by 40 points. They gave up the second string defense, gave up a touchdown, um, at the last second. And he went down there and chewed them out. Didn't go celebrate at midfield. They chewed them out like they had lost the game. And I said, Oh man, is this what I'm in for? And they went 13 and two that year. They lost the state championship to Shaw, but that got the town buzzing that they played in the state title game. So the next year they went 15 and 0, my eighth grade year. He went 15 and 0, won the state championship by, I believe, 50 points, maybe 45 points. Wow. And now it was my turn to go to high school. And I thought, man alive, that's a lot of pressure, you know, and the private school there, they ran the wishbone at the public school at States Park. They ran the wishbone offense, which my dad knew wasn't going to be good for me. And the private school was calling all the time saying, we'll throw the ball every play, we'll get a lot of passing reps, you know. And I just thought, man, I want to go be a part of what they just accomplished. I want to go win a state championship. I want to play against the best competition in the state. And so as an eighth grader, we got bust over 
to the high school for spring training if we wanted to participate. First day, there are 13 quarterbacks on the roster. I'm not, I don't know where to go. I don't know what's going on. There's no instruction. There's only yelling, you know, <laughs> and um, there's 13 quarterbacks on the roster. I think by day two, by day two, I think by day two, there was there were half that. And then by day three, there were three of us left, either kids left or uh, we got switched positions. And the, the kid who was going to be the starting quarterback that year um, had gotten injured. I'm taking first string reps as an eighth grader on the high school team that had just won the state championship. And I'll tell you what, I played quarterback at Michigan. I, you know, I, I directed my first national commercial at 26. I've done some things, but in terms of the level of pressure, I'll never face anything like that, man. <laughs> Having Buzz Busby almost to the point where it was so <laughs> primal in my instincts that it was just react and get through the day. It, there was no time to sit back and think about it because it was, um, I mean, it was an experience, man. It was an experience. I ended up, um, I ended up starting as a sophomore. I lettered as a freshman, I was a starting quarterback, I was a starting quarterback as a sophomore. And I remember my first game also, like it was yesterday, Scriven County at their place, my first pass, my first pass was a 70 yard touchdown pass. It's a great way to start. And I'll tell you what, man, that's, I mean, and I threw another, I threw a second touchdown pass that game. We ended up losing to Scriven that game, but we, Statesboro was coming back. You know, Statesboro was coming back to, to, to the form that it had been when I was in middle school and Coach Busby was instilling this sort of reload every year approach, you know. And so we were going through the season. I wasn't asked to do a whole lot. We were running the wishbone, which was fine for me at that time because just turning the ball around, t turning around and handing the ball off to great running backs was a tall enough task at that age. And we threw when, when we needed to. And, um, you know, we, we implemented some passing attacks, but it was, um, it was great experience. And we, um, we made the playoffs. And then the second round of the playoffs, we played the number one team in the state, Ware County. Bigger stadium that I had ever seen. We were down at their place. And um, we took them to, to two overtimes. They missed an extra point, and we won. So we ended up going and playing in the Dome that year. We played Tucker in the Dome. And um, we took them to two overtimes on my birthday in the Georgia Dome, December 13th as a sophomore. And um, we took them to two overtimes, and we won that game. We won that game, so we go to went a bid to the state championship. So we came back to Atlanta again the next week and played Marist at their place with a quarterback by the name of Sean McVay. You know, it's having some uh, success out on the West Coast now. <laughs> and they ran the triple option. And um, one of the coldest nights I've ever, I've ever faced. The, one of the coldest, one of the top three coldest games I've ever played in, including Michigan. And I, and I mean that. I mean that I couldn't button my chin strap on some plays. And they were, they were too much. They beat us 21 to 6, I believe. And, um, they won the state title and, and we lost it at their place as a sophomore. And I thought, we, uh, we've got something special here though. We weren't supposed to be anything this year. You know, we're supposed to be the young guys. We started a dozen sophomores, including myself, I think. You know, let's, um, let's see what, let's see what happens with this run. And we've learned so much from the guys that, um, the guys that are leaving from this class. And um, we were excited about the next year, but Coach Busby ended up leaving. He had some conflicts with the administration, some stuff happened, and he's, he was such a principled individual that he ended, up, um, he ended up leaving and taking another job. And we thought, man, what's going to happen now? Kind of deflated that balloon, you know. But Steve Pennington, the um, defensive coordinator, became the head coach, and our offensive coordinator, Kenny Tucker, um, remained in position. So we were still hopeful. And the senior class that was a year ahead of me, they were special. They were special. So we knew we could, we could do something, um, great. And, um, so we go, we, we went 10 in a row. We're 10 and 0. We make the playoffs. Um, we ended up playing Tucker again at their place. And you want to talk about a bloodbath, man. I've never been involved in a game like that. It was raining. Um, they were tough, man, and they were late hits and some cheap shots, and uh, but that, that's just how they played. They were physical, and um, we took them. Um, we we got down to the one yard line. We're down by I think five, something like that. We're on the one yard line, fourth and one, under a minute to go to punch it in. Statesboro on the wishbone offense, and we came up short. We came up short, and they held, and um, we went back to the sidelines, and we're thinking, man, you know. That was it. We were supposed to go to the state championship this year, you know? So they were on the one-yard line, and we had a tremendous defense, which I'll talk about more when I get to my senior year. But um, 
they ended up holding Tucker and we had a couple timeouts and they took a safety intentionally, which got us to within three points, which got us to within two points actually. And um, they kicked off, but because it was raining, they botched the kick a little bit. So we got the ball at midfield with just, you know, I don't know how much time was left, 20 seconds maybe. And we're thinking, okay, well, this wasn't as good as being on the one-yard line, but the time, the clock doesn't say zero yet, you know. And so we um, I threw a couple passes, and the, the, the last one of which was caught and advanced to a first down, but he didn't get out of bounds. So the clock didn't stop, but we did get a first down, so it stopped for just um, momentarily. Ran the kicking unit on. I was the holder. You know, all of this is just happening where, I, you know, the time's clicking, clicking. I'm calling for the ball. I put throw the tee down. He snaps the ball. One of my good friends, Zach Sanders, runs up. He slips a little bit, makes contact with the ball. Tucker lets off their balloons in celebration for a victory. And the ball leaves his foot. The clock hits zero, and it makes it over the, the post by a yard. And I think Atlanta Journal-Constitution or Comcast or someone called it the game of the decade. And I had never been involved. And even now, you know, I I start shaking because I haven't, you know, recalled some of these memories in a long time. But that was to, to beat Tucker at their place. And that really cemented a rivalry then, you know. And we went on to, we, we beat Griffin the next week in the Dome 7-0, and they had some talent. I think Bobby Rainey, maybe 3,000-yard rushers maybe on that team, we beat 7-0. And we went on to play in the state championship at our place this time. We played Warner, Warner Robbins in the state championship, who had just come down from 5A. And uh, we thought, okay, we can go 15-0 and and win the state championship, just like we had said, you know, despite some adversity. And we were leading at halftime, 14-13, and we didn't score another point the whole game. And they scored quite a bit more. And I think they, they scored two or three more touchdowns. And so we lost the state championship at our place, 14-1. and And that was heartbreaking because we knew we were losing a lot of talent in that 05 class. And so when we go into the summer that year, um, that was the summer of 05. I just had two things on my mind. I said, you know, I've got to get uh, a series of college scholarships here because I want to commit before my season before starts so year. that I can focus on winning a state championship. And had you already been receiving recruiting letters from smaller schools? On the radar? From smaller schools, I had gotten a few offers, Division um, 1AA and Division 3. And a couple bigger schools like Florida State, I had taken unofficial visits to. And so this was the summer. And I had been going to camp. I started going to camps when I was in eighth grade. But I really, as a freshman and a sophomore and a junior, I was going to three or four camps a year to really meet schools, meet coaches, you know, and become better technically with my passing form since we didn't throw the ball at Statesboro High. But as a, but going into my senior year, that summer of 05, I went to 13 camps. Good grief. My parents had an old van, cleaned out the back seat where I kept some pillows and a Walkman in my playbook, and they drove me all around the country. They drove me all around the country, and we went to 13 different camps, and um, I remember throwing at Auburn. I threw very well at Auburn in the rain. Tommy Tupperville was there, and um, I think Al Borges was the OC, and they already had two quarterback commits coming in that year. They said, we like you, but we have two. And, you know, I didn't have any major college offers at that point. I liked Florida State. They had two coming in that year. Stafford was going to Georgia. Tebow was going to Florida. Mitch Mustang was going to Arkansas. I mean, the South was locked up, you know. And so um, my father called Michigan and Notre Dame and Wisconsin. We wanted to do a Big Ten tour. But Michigan called back and said, or Michigan, he talked to the uh Scott Leffler at Michigan, the quarterback coach, and said, thanks for calling. I actually have just heard about your son from a high school coach that was at the Auburn camp, and I'd like to take a look. Will you bring him up for camp? He said, yes, we'll do a Big Ten tour, and we'll include Notre Dame and you know, and a couple other schools that are up that way, and we'll bring him. But in the meantime, I was going to Mississippi State and Louisville. So I went to Mississippi State for Sylvester Croom, threw well, and he offered me a scholarship on the spot. So that was my first division one offer. And that was my first sec offer. And so I kind of had that under my belt and I, I liked Mississippi state and that was big that they had the confidence in me at that point, you know? So then I went off to Louisville and threw for Bobby Petrino and had one of my best camps and they just had the number one offense in the nation that year. So Bobby Petrino called my father over and, um, and said, we like your son. We want to take a look at him through a senior year and see what happens. And we said, okay, okay, you know. And um, so I went off to Michigan. I went to camp at Michigan, and I threw okay. I threw okay. I had, th- I had thrown better at Louisville and at Auburn. 
And um, when you say you threw good or you threw okay, mm-hmm. define that. Yeah. So I um, at these camps, they run you through every drill, drill imaginable, and um, you know we're taking three step drops, five step drops. See how you hitch. They even pulled out the college footballs for that camp, which were bigger than the high school footballs that we were using, and you're required to complete the passes, you know, throw a post, throw a slant, throw a comeback, you know, even in terms of um, reading coverages, they're seven on seven. It's a full camp for other positions as well. And then they, they would take me off and have private workouts and, and I threw privately because when you're a senior, you're allowed to do that. Whereas I didn't get to participate in that when I was a sophomore and a junior. And, um, you know, some days you throw better. And I threw, you know, I threw really well at some camps and I threw pretty good at Michigan, but it, I, I just, I felt like it wasn't my best camp and we were going to head off to Wisconsin the next day. And coach Carr asked if we would stick around. Um, and we said, absolutely. So they showed us around town and coach Carr called my whole family into his office the next day. And he said, we'd like to offer David a, a scholarship to come to the university of Michigan. And I'll tell you what, something I didn't tell you about uh, my mother is that she was born in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> and she never cared for football too much growing up, except when we said that Ohio State was playing. And she said, oh, well, that's good. That's good. I hope they, they do well. Because her whole side of the family were Buckeyes. And she got more excited than anyone in that room. And I'll tell you what, she hasn't worn anything but maize and blue since then. Okay. And, uh, she's a traitor within the family. I know. I know. And my uh, grandmother was still alive at that time. And even she was excited for me. And, um, I mean, that was the goal, a division one college offer to pay for school. So did you accept at that? I did not. I did not. I told coach Carr, I said, this is the the greatest honor I can imagine, especially um, considering that you're not asking to see my senior year. I've come up here. I've played in two state title games. I've thrown well for you here. Thank you. Let me just, let me take a few days. I'm supposed to go to camp at Virginia and I'm supposed to go to my second camp at Georgia Tech this week. Um, let me just complete the circuit that we had planned. And I promise, you know, I will call you this week and, and, um, and we'll have a conversation. And so I, part of me wanted to accept right there in the room, you know, and just say, man, let's do this thing. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to just, take a moment and see what my parents thought too privately because it was a long way from home and um so at that point all the phones started ringing off the hook you know and I was getting calls to go to camp and I just said right when we got back to Statesboro I told my dad I said I think that's I think that's it I said let's go just like when I was coming into high school I said let's go play where the best of the best play let's go see what um let's go see what it's all about and I want to compete at the highest level and it's the number two public school academically in the country. It's the winningest football program of all time. I said, I want to be a part of that. And uh, so I called Coach Leffler. I said, I want to come to Michigan. And um, someone had told my father, you know, Michigan doesn't recruit. They summon. They summon people. <laughs> and um, he said, uh, Coach Leffler said, all right, let's do it. And Coach Carr visited my home. We made a, we made a, a dinner for him and hosted him. And, um, you know, the head football coach at Michigan being in Statesboro, Georgia, I mean, it was unreal. Had to be some news. It was unreal. And, um, and I'm, I'm just so indebted to that program. You know, I try and live, live my life in such a way that, um, that not only makes my family and my parents proud, but that represents the University of Michigan well, because I was invited into that brotherhood. And um, I tell you, it's, it's one of the greatest accomplishment, accomplishments of my life. How was that, though, then when Lloyd Carr is let go at Michigan and yeah. Rich Rodriguez comes in? Because I mean, you obviously had a connection with Lloyd Carr. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, he brought me in. Like I said, he came to my house. The press puts out, um, you know, um, big paper, you know, and... Uh, um, committed to the University of Michigan. We had a conversation that I was going to gain a lot of weight. I was going to sit back, learn the offense, learn from Scott Leffler, the quarterback guru, the mastermind. And um, and that was kind of going to be my journey. It was going to take a few years. Chad Henney was there. Well, in the meantime, my senior year of high school, I won a state championship. I went 15-0. and And we beat um, Northside Warner Robins in the state title game. And um, I uh, we won it on Georgia Southern's home field. And Paulson Stadium with 17, 18,000 packed out. It was unbelievable, you know? And so I graduate, and five days later, I ship off to the University of Michigan to start, you know, my duty. And, you know, when, when Coach Carr, Coach Carr was there for two years, and again, another coaching change for me. 
you know, after two seasons. And when Rich Rodriguez came in, I knew that I wasn't going to be the starting quarterback anymore. I knew I wasn't going to play. And um, so why did you know that? Well, just because of the style offense they run, they they had been running at West Virginia. And I knew what they were looking for. I had some conversations with Coach Rodriguez and his staff. And um, so it was a lot of players were transferring, quarterbacks were transferring, and it was my time to do the same thing. And I thought about it. I thought about going to North Carolina with a strong academic program and still good good college football. And um, I just thought, you know what? I want to stay at the University of Michigan. I want to... um, I want to repay this school for taking a chance on me. I want to stick it out. I want to have my Michigan degree, and I want to be a Michigan Wolverine. And I said, um, you know, I'd like to play in the NFL, and if I'm talented enough, I can do it from a backup role here because a quarterback had done it two years prior. He played for the Patriots for a little bit behind Tom Brady. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay, and um, I want to be a part of this program. And to this day, I'm very... um, I'm very pleased that I stuck it out, and I'm just, like I said, I'm so indebted and so grateful to that university. Um, and uh, it ended up that I didn't play in the National Football League. I came up short, but I got the best education imaginable. I played for the winningest program to ever be involved in the game of football, you know. And, and you're uh, also part of arguably the greatest rivalry in all the sports, and we alluded to that. Just a few minutes ago with Ohio State mm-hmm. and Michigan. Man, that's Describe something. what that is like. I mean, it's a, um, on the surface, it's a deep, deep hatred. You know, it's a deep hatred. But really underneath, there is this respect. And that's what makes it so special. Because if you just hate another team, and you know what's interesting is is I, I talked with um, Kirk Herbstreet about this because I've worked with him several times in the past few years um, on some video shoots. And I'll tell you what, he's one of the greatest people I've ever worked with. And okay. he's an Ohio State Buckeye. And I would come on to set and get ready to direct him. And he'd say, you know, how's Michigan going to do this year? And I'd say, you tell me, man. You're in the know. <laughs> you know? And, um, and he said, I want Michigan to do well. He said, we all do, because we want that rivalry to stay the greatest rivalry in sport. And, uh, I mean, he's right, you know, um, and, and, and Ohio State has a tremendous program. And every year around Thanksgiving in late November, I just feel, you know, I feel this energy inside me that cannot be described in terms of what I would come down to the field house in the locker room and experience, especially when I was a young guy. And, um, I mean, it's just all about beating Ohio State. And I think that, uh, I think that it's good to have not only that type of rivalry in your life to, to, to make you strive to do better, but also for it to be rooted in a deep respect. And I think that, um, um, the epitome of that was, was, um, Bo Schembechler and Woody Hayes. You know, the way that they interacted with each other and their private back channelings that they had with one another. And, um, really I think how much they loved and respected each other. And you only get that, I think, with that rivalry um, and, that, and that sort of history. What about then the next step of this dream of making it to the NFL? Mm-hmm. When did that realization, though, hit that it wasn't going to happen? And how did you move on from that? Well, you and I both met through Rob Baca, I believe, right? Yes. And, and he is a tremendous individual. And the first time I ever sat down and had a conversation with him, we talked about the psychology of being done playing football. And um, he was so right on with many of his points. And football had become who I was and not what I did. And that was so true. And um, because I had lived this every day for my entire life from just a skinny, a skinny little kid in South Georgia picking up a football. You know, I had a football in my crib when I was born, basically. And now um, it was clear to me that I wasn't going to play in the National Football League. And everybody said, well, you're going to make a great coach. And I thought, you know... I don't really want to coach. I wanted to play the game. I didn't want to coach. But more importantly, um, even if at some point in my life I do get back in coaching, because I do love teaching, and I think I get that from my parents, and I think that's a big aspect of being a director on set. But even if I do get back into coaching one day, I just 
something hit me there my junior and senior year of college where I said, I want to experience all the world has to offer. I don't only want to be involved with football for my entire life. I want to do other things. I want to study philosophy. I was studying religion. I was, you know, I was picking up a guitar. I was making short films with my teammates. You know, all of this when, when time allowed, at least, trying to squeeze it into my schedule, trying to maximize the Michigan difference, you know, the Michigan education, take advantage of everything that it had to offer. And and um, honestly, it was a big risk. Maybe it was a bigger risk than I should have taken walking away from um, the game when I had um, reached a pinnacle of the sport and had so many connections. And uh, I mean, it was a risk to say, I want to try and do something new or some things new, you know, d d different, different activities. Um, and I think that so far it's paid off. Well, that's what I admire, though, that you were able to go in this completely different direction, but you're utilizing the life lessons that you've learned from mm -hmm. sports. And so when did you make that decision, filmmaking, this music? Because that's just not an easy transition no. to go off on your own like that. And yeah. now this things that you're doing, working with the Atlanta Falcons, you know, working with the PGA, mm -hmm. you're doing some big mm -hmm. film projects. How did that happen? Yeah, well, like I said, it was a huge risk and the psychological impacts of being done with football were bigger than I even anticipated because I was like, man, I miss, you know, I miss the game. I miss the sport. I miss the camaraderie with the guys. Those are my brothers. I have two biological brothers, but when I left Michigan, you know, I had, I had hundreds of brothers. And, you know, I really missed those guys. Did you and go through depression? I did. I, I, I was depressed for a little bit. Not, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to say I had depression because there are many people who are going through that on a, on a chronic scale. Um, and I just, just because I was upset about not, you know, being able to play with the living <laughs> yeah. shape ball for a little bit. I don't want to, you know, make it more severe than it was. But I, um, there was this, 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 um, you know, the idea within me of what's next, the what's next question, you know, what do I do next? Because this is what I've done my entire life. And, um, I made a, for film specifically, I'd made a few short films when I was there, entered a, uh, my hometown film festival. And I won, I won that with a, with a short film that I had made. And, um, I had gotten an opportunity to come back to Atlanta and take film classes for free, part of a scholarship that, um, that I, that I had open to me. And I thought, you know what, I'm definitely not going to jump ship right off to Los Angeles right now, because I don't know if I'm even any good at this. I don't really know how passionate I am about it. I just know that I'd like to pursue it a little bit. I know that with all the knowledge and the connection that I have a football with a football that will be there for me. If I want to fall back on that, I may go to law school. I was thinking about law school. My father went to law to Arkansas law school. And, um, so I was thinking about all these different avenues and I just thought, you know, these, um, these, these film directors are creating artwork. They're using their entire brain, their entire mental state to, to, to make these, these, these projects. And I thought, how great is that? Because I love films. I loved high energy Michael Jordan commercials. You know, I love these documentaries. So I thought, I want to try my hand at this. So I learned at the uh, Art Institute of Atlanta for a little bit, started getting small projects. And, um, just like you said, um, that discipline that had been instilled in me from sports and the concept of delayed gratification, I kind of said, okay, here we go again. Everything that I want in life isn't going to happen tomorrow. You know, and I, it is, it, it is making me very nervous to start over completely on something. But then I thought I'm not starting over completely because I'm utilizing a skill set that I have, um, established throughout my life. Being a director on set, being a quarterback is being a director on the field, having to know every single position and what they do at any given moment, being the coach on the field. I thought, well, that's what running a film set must be like. And I watched, you know, I was obsessed with Stanley Kubrick and was watching all these behind the scenes of the Coen brothers and P.T. Anderson and Darren Aronofsky. And in a way that a lot of my other teammates weren't, um, a few did, you know, my good friend Tom Pomerico was obsessed with, with films in the way that I was. And that, you know, provided me a good outlet to, to kind of explore the medium a little bit without completely jumping, you know, off the branch. But, um, I got an opportunity to direct a series for Adobe, the Adobe, um, creative cloud. And I pitched them on a series called why I create. And I think I was 23 or 24, right out of, right out of college. And they loved it and we produced it and we made it. And, um, that was a national ad, you know, throughout, um, 
on the internet. And after that, I really had gotten some confidence that, okay, I, I have a vision for the projects that I'm wanting to make. I want to tell positive stories. Um, you know, I, I can't always do that. Sometimes I have to take whatever job kind of rolls through the door, but I, I want to focus on telling positive stories. I think I can do that visually in a way that um, satisfies me and helps the world. And I said, can all of those things intersect? And I'm pay my bills. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> the thing. Exactly. The bills. It is. Yes. It is. I mean, you know, I didn't have any desire to be any sort of struggling artist or to make a statement, you know, that, um, Hey, you know, I want to, I don't, I wanted to, to put the world on my shoulders and accept my responsibilities and be able to, to make a living and to make the world a better place. And I said, can I use this skill set that I have here? I, you know, I think I have a creative eye, um, can help better the world. And one thing led to another, and that's when um, the PGA of America, my first spot came about. That was Charlie Sifford, who broke the color barrier in golf, and we had to make it on like two weeks notice, maybe 10 days notice, I think. No other directors were taking the job. It was my responsibility to produce the spot, but I jumped at the chance to direct it too, and the production company, IU, um, believed in me, and they said, okay, well, let's let's give it a shot, you know, and um, I directed that. That was a national spot all over the Masters and um, the um, PGA Championship and, you know, all the golf majors, and after that, they entrusted us with a full campaign, you know, to do the centennial campaign for the PGA of America, so that was another eight national commercials that, that aired, and I put those together. I got to work with um, Chris Paul out in Los Angeles, Davis Love III in his home down in Sea Island, Jordan Spieth, we shot in Dallas at his home course. Um, I think we were at Dallas National for that, and um, that's when he was the number one golfer in the country. I worked with Renee Powell in Ohio and Jack Dean, it was just a wonderful campaign, and before I knew it, that led to the Atlanta Falcons hype video that had come about, and um, we put that together up in Flowery Branch, and um, you know, I had been a Dolphins fan, like I said, growing up, but as soon as, uh, as, soon as I got that opportunity, I, I said, rise up for sure, you know, go Falcons, and right here in my backyard, and you know what, to bring it full circle, that video played every single time the Atlanta Falcons ran out on the field for the 2016 year, the year they went to the Super Bowl, but it was also the final year in the Georgia Dome where I had won three games, where I was 3-0 and in high school, and then they tore it down, and they built a new stadium, and such is the nature of life, you know? Um, new things come about, new opportunities come about, but um, yeah, that was very special. Yeah. And then um, for music specifically, um, like music to be a part of my life moving forward there's something about the the order of it the you know abolishing chaos almost that um you know the melodies and the harmonies and the structure that's why we tap our feet when we hear music that's why we can remember a melody that we've only heard once and we don't know the name of the song but we're humming it in the shower and i don't know they some of them just get channeled through me some of the best ones you know and so who do you listen to today i listen to um you know certainly like what i was saying when i was coming out of college the red hot chili peppers were really cool to me because they were making so many different sounds and um, i really liked what john mayer was doing on guitar and citizen cope and certainly ed sheeran has kind of taken that sound over now but i'll tell you what even in terms of jim croce and james taylor and um buddy holly chuck berry you know a lot of the old school people uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, I was obsessed and still am obsessed with their music. Credence Clearwater, you know, my dad always had them playing. And I think that my music is just, it, it brings it brings all of these different genres and styles together in a way that I really don't understand how I did it. You know, I just, I knew, I didn't know what sound I was going for, but I knew that there was a sound that would kind of make me smile when I heard it. And after writing a few terrible songs, not knowing what I was doing, I started to hear that sound a little bit. And a lot of people say that I sound like Jack Johnson when they come to shows. Certainly I've loved some of his material as well. And um, Zach Brown, I think is phenomenal. And even, you know, Sam Hunt now, who, um, who played college football as well. You know, I'd love an opportunity to, con to connect with him one day because he's doing some special things. And I think all of those individuals, they're all writers and they, and they, they have these ideas that they are able to stare down a blank sheet of paper and bring them to life. And you can only do that with um, a certain level of discipline and a certain level of confidence. And once again, I think that all of that was established for me through sports um, and from a very young age. And you have something that I've stolen from a good friend of mine, this terminology, active patience, Okay. where 
you're understanding the delayed gratification, mm -hmm. and but you're being active about it because uh, you can't be passive. You still have to keep, continue doing things and moving forward, but knowing that it might not happen overnight. It might not happen the next day. So when you think about those type of things, what are some other words of wisdom that uh, that you have leaned on over the years? Well, I'll tell you what, that active patience, that's very good. And I want to use that moving forward. And, um, you know, I saw so many teammates that I played with in high school and in college who peaked at that age, you know, who peaked as a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old or, or a 22-year-old. And that established a level of fear within me, I must say. I was fearful because I did not want my prime to be when I was a teenager or in my early 20s. And so that's one reason that I fought through and said, I want to, I want to experience the world. You know, I want to experience the world and I want to be a participant. I don't want to be a watcher. You know, it wasn't good enough for me growing up to watch football games. I could only get through a quarter. I only saw Dan Marino ever play a quarter of football because I had to go out and throw the football right <laughs> after that. You know, I um, it's hard for me to go see a music show because I want to come home and I want to noodle around on the guitar right then. You know, I watch a film and immediately I have ideas that I want to do for myself. So I love your idea of being active. You know, you must be active, and um, and. And I just, I, I just always had this um, desire to continue to progress and to continue to grow. And I think that's important for um, individuals, especially for younger individuals who may be listening to this, to understand that um, you know it's a long game. Life is a long game, and um, you know you, you have to play it. You have to, uh, you have to be involved in the game, and you have to understand that um, what you want, what you, what you're dreaming of can be out there okay but it takes a level of work and a level of discipline that's almost unknown to, to, to mankind you know what i mean the level of work that you have to put in is unbelievable and that gets shown and that gets rewarded on the back end you know and that's that that goes hand in hand i think with what you've said definitely david i can't thank you enough for the time and just allowing me to come in and thank you man to you and Learn more about your journey. I greatly I really appreciate, appreciate it. it, man. This is absolutely wonderful. While pursuing success, it's not only about getting in the game or getting in the arena. It's also about having the perseverance to have a long-term view and not get consumed with instant gratification. And there's no doubt that David has experienced that in his life, not only in his latest endeavors with film and songwriting and his music, but also out on the football field. While his debut single, So Close, is appropriately titled, representing some of his journey, it's evident that his patience is now turning into success. Now that finishes episode 75. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.